very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And if you want to get in touch with me, have a guest suggestion, want to be a guest on this radio program, or simply have feedback, I always love to hear from you. Just click on the contact button of our website. And tonight we present to you the third installment of the life and technology of David Adair. So when we hear of the alleged secret space program, are we actually referring to the ONI? No, NRO. NRO. Uh, yeah, the NRO would be running something like that. The ONI wouldn't have enough horsepower uh, juice to get to the that level. This rumor of, uh, you probably heard, and I don't mean to deviate, but I just before I forget, a quick parenthesis, you heard of the quote-unquote hacker Gary McKinnon. No, I don't think I have. This is the British young man who supposedly hacked, I don't think he hacked, he basically went into the the U.S. government computers and extracted information, and he mentioned that among the things he found he found two vessels, two U.S. military vessels. One was the USSS Roscoe Hillencotter, and another one, USSS Curtis LeMay. Do you believe that? Oh, yeah. Aren't these supposed to be like um, spaceship carriers? Correct. Yeah, I heard of that. Um, <laughs> that a rumor? Is this true, or is I it think, just... I think Curtis would be tickled to have a... To him being Air Force, or it would amuse him that you have a naval aircraft carrier named after him, but he would, his ego would probably like it, but um, it's just, what an irony when I heard that, I thought, um, but it makes sense, I mean, you got Ronald Reagan, the carrier. But do you think this is disinformation? I don't know, I don't know enough about it, uh, but... um I mean, of all, pe- <laughs> of all people, for me telling somebody, you know, don't throw rocks in a glass house, I live in probably people think the biggest glass house of them all. But um, I haven't seen those carriers, uh, so I don't know. But it is, let's just do a what if. What if this stuff is real? Uh, if you have off-world uh, technologies, off-world colonies, that's, that's a mind-blower. Then, um, 
if you follow the matrix of things, it would be logical to assume that these off-worlds would have protection. And if they had protection, they then might easily show up in the forms of spacecraft, battleships, whatever, uh, in space. So a space carrier would be a logical conclusion to come to. I don't know if any of that's real. I don't know if the off-world technologies are real. If I haven't seen it, I hadn't put my hands on it, uh, I'm not going to tell you that it's real or not because I just don't have enough sure, information. Sure, I understand. And, um, but, keep, but then that's coming from a guy that, <laughs> yeah, I saw this alien power plant in a, some kind of big underground base on the Area 51, and and yet I'll turn around and tell you I've never seen an alien, never seen a UFO, and certainly not a space aircraft carrier. Um well, I appreciate the fact that I, I appreciate the fact that David that you don't embellish because a lot of people, and I'm not going to mention names, a lot of people have had great stories from the 1960s, 70s. All of a sudden, their story becomes stale, and a few years later, they start making things up just to keep their stories relevant. And your story wow. has always been the same ever since I heard it the first time. Well, when you live, uh, when you live a life. In a chronological line, which all everyone does, and you r do recall, it's going to come back the same every single time because you lived it, and it's easy to do recall until you get old. Watch, <laughs> I'm getting there, and your memory goes, but you don't. Uh, I've even had FBI profilers work on me one time. I didn't know who they were. They just had dinner. And they were running through my, they were running me through all questions through my stories and they were jumping about like pulp fiction, uh, different, breaking the timelines and stuff. <laughs> and they said, then what they were trying to do is get me confused. And I, you know, all, all I had to do was stop, close my eyes, look up, and then I'll tell you exactly what happened, or what I remember. Well, what got the profile is they told him, we can't say it's real or not, but we can tell you one thing. He's not lying. He's doing recall. He never looks at the floor. He always looks up and to the left. That's recall. So if he's doing recall, the only thing we can conclude is it's a real story. God help us. And, um, yeah, I've had that comment a lot of times. And I'm not going to embellish something because, <laughs> truthfully, you can... <laughs> It's crazy enough as it is. It doesn't need to be added to. Good God. Uh, so what happened after you were subjected to barbiturates and so on? I, um, Rudolph, actually, he hurt me. He really, he permanently did some damage on me. Um, I, when I came, finally got me out of there and got me to the Navy schools, um, I was doing some uh, I was sent to the B schools, and um, those are college equivalent um, classes. And so you have to think. You really do, you get, especially in the math area. And I felt okay, but then I realized something. All of my high-end functions uh, just weren't there and um, got terrible headaches in the forehead. And had my um, brain scanned, and I, I and there's some evidence. Uh, I've got all kinds of trauma 
and the frontal lobes from, um, it's not trauma from impact, it's chemical trauma. So people think, oh, he must experiment with drugs. <laughs> no, but I certainly had somebody wailing on me with a lot of, um, I guess better names, uh, truth serum stuff, but boy, the saddest part was I looked at some old notes, just a few, just a few scrap notes, like in a little memo pad, and I remember writing it. Uh, it's in my handwriting, and I remember writing those expressions, but I can't read them anymore. So, um. But what do you think they were? Well, they, I remember writing them. They were uh, mathematical expressions for fusion containment. So all of that type of mass and um, processing stuff got hurt um, when your when your brain's attacked chemically like that. It will uh, damage will start at the very highest functions and then work their way down. And um, is that so form of lobotomizing in a way? Yeah. Exactly. What do you think? Well, look where the lobotomy takes place. Where does it take place? Fr- frontal lobe. Frontal lobe, in front of your head. That's where I hurt the most. And if I try to really concentrate on my math, it's just I can't do it anymore. It's just fortunately I have memory of it, but I don't have functionality with it, if that makes sense. In other words, I can read, I can look at stuff and go, that's my handwriting. I remember writing it, but I can't read it. So because I guess the frontal lobe got hurt too much, um, and the higher end functions. So what happened after, Uh, after Rudolph got what he, did he get what he needed the first time? No, he did not. uh, That makes me happy. Um, he got some, but not enough to take him all the way where he wants to get. Sent him in a different direction, though, but he um, he couldn't get the main stuff he, he wanted. It just, well, I guess my little brain just wouldn't give it up. So, um, But I thought you were going to be protected by LeMay's people. Obviously, you were not. They, well, they called up about two days later. Two or three. I was there about three days. In about three days, they got there because that's how I ended up in the Navy. Because there was a big fight going on in the hallway. I could hear it. And then the people started coming and asking me questions. Would you do this? Would you do that? And then finally, it was like a compromise. And I said, um, I'm not going to build offensive WMDs, but I will work on jet engines. And they said, well, then you're going to go to the Navy. And um, I went through uh, Great Lakes, then uh, Pensacola, then Norfolk. And when I got to Norfolk, that's where I settled in and um, started really working on stuff for the Navy. But um, uh, I never saw LeMay ever again after that. And I did see Rudolph a couple of times. Um, he just showed up on base. And um, But what happened there was I figured the only way you're going to fight people like this is you're going to have to fight this fire with a fire. So I really poured it on. Um, I advanced five ranks in four years. First four years, I went up a rank every year. Uh, I really was, I really liked the place. It turned out I found my niche. Um, and I was really helping out 
on a lot of the propulsion units. How many years were you in the Navy? Ten. Ten. From 72 to 82. And um, and the last six was, uh, actually the last four really was crazy. Um, no, that's classified. But um, uh, I would have stayed 30 years if I hadn't gotten injured so bad. And um, I couldn't keep up with uh, my own personnel. How did you get uh, injured? Was that in 82? Uh, no, that was in 73. Oh, a year uh, after? Yeah, well, the year. But, uh, yeah, in 73 I got injured. And um, How? Well, I just, um, God, do you think with all the being out in the field and stuff, I'd get hurt really bad there? <laughs> no, that's not what happened. What happened was it was on a Sunday. That's the first problem. Everybody... In the Navy, in the military on Sundays, they are all in the NCO clubs. Uh, unfortunately, alcoholism is a big problem in the Navy. Uh, when I was there, it was from 72 to 82. probably still is. So the point is, being on a Sunday, there's nobody around. And uh, they had these big jet engines come in that I was working on called the T-56 turboprop. Those are the big engines that's on the P-3 Orion, uh, the Hurricane Chaser, and the E-2C Hawkeye, the radar dome plane. That's these engines are from. And I'm gonna, at that time, I was an expert. Can't on, hear you. I was an expert on the, t, I was an expert on T-56 turboprop engines. So, so they were bringing them in to, uh, Norfolk from all, all over the world. And um, they had to be, uh, turbines had to be changed. That's another whole story in itself. But anyhow, um, they didn't want to wait for uh, the forklift, which is not a forklift. It's a thing called a heister. It looks like a forklift that's on steroids. It's really... Hold on. Um they wanted to wait for the high. I wanted to wait for the heister. It's, it's like a, a super forklift. It's about ten times the size of a of a forklift in a in a you know, supply uh, building. And I wanted a heister because that's what's going to pick up this jet engine and put it on a trailer. Well, they didn't want to wait, so they grab a regular forklift and they they hook a cable to this jet engine on a on the rails and they're sliding it down to the to the truck bed and I'm going I don't that's not a good idea guys you really should wait for that ice shirt so a rookie uh, a recruit gets in between the rails to make sure the rails lined up and I went that's like being between the rails of a train coming at you and I turned and looked at him and I started telling him get out of there you know get on the sides and I hear this pop, a really strange pop, and I know that sound. It's metal fatigue. It's got a unique sound. And then I'm still hearing it. It's continuous. And I turned and looked, and the hook that is hooked onto this jet engine, it has popped, and it's straightening out real slowly, the hook. You know, big steel hook, yep. uh, cargo hook, and it's straightening out. These engines are heavy. Too heavy. Bus, and it's going to straighten out. It's going to break, and this 
this engine's going to come flying down them rails. It's going to land on that flatbed, but it's going to, it's going to cut in half this Navy recruit. He didn't have any better sense. And I went, Oh God. So either I can just turn my back and just listen to the, to the crunch and the cut and the splatter of it all, or I could react. And I thought, well, maybe I'm fast enough. So what I do, I'll reach over and I grab this little guy by his shirt collar and his belt and I hurl him out of there and I get him out of the, uh, from in between the rails and I throw him out in the parking lot. And, um, I'm turning to go with him and just as I'm about to clear this big, um, arm that's holding the jet engine in place has a big, um, it's like a big ball, uh, socket thing that you know it's an elbow of a mechanical arm huge that thing catches me in the l4 l5 area of my back and it hits me so hard it pushes my spinal column into my left kidney wow his pain is just i remember going over everybody and i saw him pass underneath me i thought wow this is gonna hurt (laughs) and i hit the ground man and I come to and I am just screaming it's just pain is such agony. So anyway, um months and months in the hospital, Portsmouth Naval Hospital, and uh my whole left side, my left arm, my left leg it's they're paralyzed somewhat, can't move them very well. But I stayed there long enough, um and just did light duties until they wanted to discharge me. I said, No, I th- I think I can heal up from this. So actually, I did heal up, and I stayed another um, eight years. So um, yeah, I was going to say, how were you in this discharge in 1973? I guess. Yes, I was. Um, let's see, I can tell you exactly right here. I got two naval discharges. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, long days. Thirteenth day of June, 19. Uh, Oh, that was when I entered. Uh, here we go. Um, 18th day of May, 1981. So, uh, that's when they, I released me. But, um. Are you looking at your DD-214? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, got all that. But the thing was, um, it was a, doctor said, yeah, you recovered, but you've got something called a degenerative Injury, which means oh, the older I get, the more things break down. So, but anyway, uh, I just could not keep up, and that's why I had to leave. I was man, I was stay. They had to take a stick and run me off. But um, so those ten years, anything else yeah. that you can report? Not really. Every, <laughs> everything that I did from after the jet engines, um, it all became classified. And that's that's kind of the irony of it is because the stuff I went through Area 51, I was 17, and you really can't sign a minor to a national security oath. So I could tell you about that, but then when it ended up in the Navy, um, I went uh, confidential, then secret, top secret, and if and, uh, let me stop you there, 17. Obviously, well, I'm wondering if they needed the consent of your, you know, your parents. Your, were your parents told? Where they were taking you when you were going to do, or they kept that quiet, obviously. 
No, they kept it quiet. They just said um, uh, that I'm being uh, taken under legal conscription. That's all they said. Even at 17? Yep. Well, I was 18. Oh, 18. Eight- but when you were 17, could they have done that without your parental consent? Uh, no, that's outright kidnapping. Um, that's right. No, they couldn't have done it. No. Uh-uh. Uh, of the minor. And LeMay brought me back physically, so they really, you know, ended that legal situation. And you wouldn't know who you want to sue. <laughs> You're not, you get nowhere. But no, that was illegal what they did. It was illegal on the second one. Actually, it was immoral, but it was illegal. It was legal because the draft was still in place and they could just take you. And they did. And it was too bad because if they hadn't done that that day, I would have went on to um, Ohio State, got my PhD, and um, come a professor. Yeah, for the rest of my life, I would have loved done that. I would have done that till about thirty or forty years. I'm too old; they couldn't stand me hobbling around. And uh, uh, but yeah, I would like done that my whole life. But because I like teaching, I like working with with people doesn't matter what age and just watch them light up when they get something you finally told them what to do how it works it's just a lot of fun are we leaving anything out from the period when you were taken to area 51 and you're discharged from the navy is there anything in the middle that you can talk about no no um well yeah there is one um that was i built three machines um, uh, in my life, it was all my early years, and um, these three machines were so unique; they were totally different from one another. Um, and that's that's a fair question critics have, and I I agree with the critics on it. Is that they ask, "Where's your work? Where's your white papers? Where's your published work?" Well. I didn't get to do it. That's the problem. But I did build three machines. But what happened to them, um, they end up being destroyed, all three of them. Um, by? Well, let's see. First one was by me at, at uh, Groom Lake. I had to blow that thing up and get it out of the hands of crazy people who wanted to make a first strike weapon. The second one, this was such a cool machine. Um, what happened... Uh, on my wall over here, I've got all these accommodations, letters, medals, all the stuff that I got from it. But what happened was, um, let's see, the year is about 1974, 75, and the Navy had a problem. It really serious, 74, because Nixon put uh, the entire military on uh, alert. Status. Yeah, uh, we were under yellow alert, and um, what that brought on. Do you remember when they started rationing gasoline in the seventies? Yes, of course, 70, in the early seventies, nineteen seventy-four. That's yep. when it going on. Well, I got caught up in all that, and <laughs> what happened was uh, we were having problems with the Middle East and um, the oil, and it was really getting intense. Now we're having to ration gasoline in America. Yep. I remember the lines. Military level, it's cranking up. Uh, it's getting, uh, we're on, we're on 12 on 12 off shifts. We are in total 
alert status about another uh, another DEFCON we've been at war. So, um, and wouldn't you know, right in the middle of all that, uh, the engines, the T-56 turboprop engines, fleet-wide, worldwide, they, um, it's something I discovered about them, which turned out that, um, uh, it's a long, detailed story, like everything I've had. I'll try to keep it short, but, um, we had, we were cranking up a, um, an, a T-56 engine in a test stand. And just as we got to what is called beta range, that is where you go to something, you go to 110%. You drive the engine 10% above all of its limits. And that's called the beta range. So we were in the beta range and this thing explodes. It just literally comes apart. It's just huge jet engine and it just literally disintegrated. And I got pieces of the turbine blades out of the wall. They were stuck in the wall. And um I had the turbine blades. I had suspicions about something. So I had the turbine blades checked out in a lab that was not part of the military system. Now, that was illegal on my part. But I had real suspicions for it. Um, so they came back in the lab, uh, told me what I was right. The turbine blades were way too light, lighter than they should be to specs. Matter of fact, on the paper, they're first grade alloyed, but on the test, they're seventh grade. What's happening, the contractors selling first grade to the Navy, or actually he's selling seventh grade to the Navy, the Navy's painting first grade. And there's a kickback going on in various personnel on both sides of the fence. And I discovered all this. Kind of mundane stuff, but until they find out that you're on to them. And um, uh, they tried killing me once. They missed. They end up crashing the plane um, that I was on board. And right before we were getting up, I was, I was on an E2C Hawkeye um, 710 with its... Uh, Whole number, and it launched out of um, NAS Norfolk Naval Air Station Norfolk, and it went down, uh, flying down along um, Oce- what's called Oceana and Ocean View, and right about Virginia Beach area. Um, well, let me back up. Th- this is in the book. I have a 400-page book I've written. I just never published it. Um, Why not? The- what are you waiting no, for? I just don't care. I don't care whether it's published and you read it or not. I don't care. I didn't write the book to go, oh, it, you know, it's really my life story. But I said, you know, I'm writing a book. Oh, look, you know, wonderful me. Look what I've done. You know, it's just, I don't care. You can be published after I'm dead. I just, um, I'm just not into that stuff. And the producer's now getting on me about it. She, how long have it been sitting there? About, 30 years, <laughs> but it, uh, it's, it's the whole story in the book. But anyway, um, a really good close friend of mine, uh, Lieutenant Williams, uh, Williamson, um, she was, um, a really nice person I liked. She was my friend and, uh, we used to set out, um, 
on the ships and you see every star there is. There's just no light. And I, I was teaching her uh, astronomy, all the different constellations and stuff. We used to sit and talk for hours doing that. Anyway, I'm a, I uh, was assigned to fly this plane, and I don't want to fly on this plane because all the all these engines are reaching a critical mass. Meaning, after it's a it's an hour thing. After they have so many hours of flying, they're going to start reaching a stress point. In other words, every E2C Hawkeye in the world is going to crash. Just a matter of time. So after I discovered this, and then uh, I think somebody read my report because I was they were upset. I went off base, and then um, so anyhow, I'm on an E2C Hawkeye the next morning. And signed the air crew, and I went, no, I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to fly on this thing. So we're on board, and there's, uh, there's five of us, and I, I was telling them, you know, keep, told the pilots, when you're flying, don't get anywhere to max line. Do not stress these engines out at all. Then. Why? I said, because there's a problem. Just take my word for it. And, um, so I was uh, I was the air tech of that plane at that moment. So they listened to me, but I was worried about it because these things could just fly apart. So we taxi down to the end of the runway, and this jeep pulls up and stops us, and out jumps uh, uh, Jill, and um, and I open the side door and ask her what she wants. She just reaches up and grabs me and spins me around, and I'm standing outside, and she goes. I need the flight hours for the month. Uh, I'm going to take your spot. And I said, no, Joe, you don't want to get on this thing. I'm telling you, it's, it's not safe. And she says, oh, you're such a, you're such a hog. And, uh, cause I just fly so many hours. I said, no, don't do it. And she slammed the door and they taxi off and I'm standing there with the driver in the Jeep and I'm going, damn it. So they take off and, um, they go down the coastline and man, they just, I'm back at the flight shack and hear on the radio that this thing just plowed into the beach. And, um, I got down, I got in the Jeep and went down there and, and everybody dead. Everybody. I mean, the, the plane was just, wasn't even a plane. It was just like millions of little pieces floating in the water and it went, hit the water. Pilots were good. They're trying to keep it off the beach. So they hit about a hundred feet away from the beach where the people were and plowed into the water. It was early morning and wasn't hardly anybody there, but still they did a good job not hitting any apartment buildings and kind No survivors? None. And um, this is all in the book, but I remember I found Jill's helmet. And um, so I ran over there and I picked up the helmet. It's heavy. I rolled it over. Her head's still in it. And uh, she didn't have no. a scratch on her. But uh, she got decapitated by the impact, I guess. But... I just thought, damn! It, it, I knew exactly what brought it down. They didn't listen so, to. Uh, well, it was the light turbines, and and I, we, I told the salvage people to uh, look for the turbines, and they brought the thing back to um, the hangar in millions of pieces, and you lay in all these sheets as big as a gymnasium in there, and I put every single piece where it should be. In relation to the shape of the plane, when I get done, you can see the entire shape from all the wreckage parts, the shape of the plane. Who's in charge of the investigation? I mean, civilians, we have the NTSB, but uh, who's in charge Jag. of... Jag. Gag. Uh, Judge Advocate General. 
Okay. That's who's in charge. And, um, and after I did this, um, crash investigation, they, since I was the, uh, well, the expert on the base of, uh, that in- particular engine, uh, JAG just drafted me for a while and I became, uh, JAG's, uh, rep in those investigations. And, um, and sure enough, I found the exact cause of what happened for the crash. And there was just a lot of things that was going on. But, um, um, so here's the problem. Um, the problem is every E2C Hawkeye radar dome plane is going to, um, be shut down. It's unfit to fly. Now, what's going on with the world? Nixon's got us on ration gas where tensions are extremely high in the Mideast. You're on alert. And now your entire fleets worldwide are deaf, dumb, and blind because the E-2 Hawkeyes fly outside the the fleets and they protect the fleets by seeing everything. So they, they are taking time bomb at the time. Were they all recalled? They were all recalled. Now your fleets are blind. You could fly in Exocet missiles across the water surface, slam into the carrier, into the destroyers. They wouldn't even see them until they hit them, uh, till the ship's radars pick it up. And by then it's too late. But with the Hawkeyes out there up in the sky, they, uh, you could see for hundreds of miles and be ready. So now your fleets are blind. You're already on tactical alert and, um, so you can imagine the priority of getting these engines fixed is through the ceiling. It's called, um, it's red one, a one a, it doesn't get any more serious than that. When that title's attached to something, it means you don't go to the bathroom. You don't do anything. You just start working on it. And, uh, so we started changing out the engines. It's such a long process. It takes you about, uh, about three weeks. To uh, overhaul these three engines. weeks, really? Yeah, because wow. you got to send for your parts out of uh, the um, NARF Naval Air Rework Facility, which is like Detroit of cars. What company built these uh, engines? Yeah, uh, well, this is Grumman. Grumman, Northrop Grumman. Yeah, Grumman's got a government. Uh, that well, this is where the problem is in the story. But right, Grumman, did they take the engines to Grumman to be fixed? Right, and it takes them about three weeks. Okay, because you've got so much bureaucracy, parts everywhere, papers and triplicate. I mean, it just yeah, and the actual mechanical process tearing down this damn thing. It's about you know weighs several tons and lots of moving parts, and um, you got to take it all down, put it all back together, put it on test stand, and check it out. And it three weeks is fast. However, I was looking at that, and we started changing. I said, man, this is not going to work. We could be in a war in two weeks. Um, so I was looking at it and figuring out, and I went, we got to change the situation. So what I did, I went and got this um, big old trailer, flatbed trailer. It was big. I mean, you could pull a, a Winnebago up on this trailer. It was old, and just ratty-looking thing you know, down in the in the, um, called Yellow Gear Boneyard equipment nobody really wanted. 
So I got that and I told the guy, I said, I need something. I need to pull this trailer around. And uh, so I had my guys go down there and I said, put new bearings in the wheels and um, get it where it can be pulled around. It rides really smooth. Then I gave him these drawings and I said, I want you to weld these things in place and all this other equipment put on board. And um, so I had drawn the whole thing out. And then we had these big arms in a, a center rail and these big arms that would, could be a pen could be pulled out of the center. His big arms would lay down each side of the trailer. And uh, what it was designed for is that you could pull this trailer up to uh, an engine that's been pulled out of the plane and it's sitting on this trailer, and you hook the trailer rails up to the rails of this uh, big trailer I built, and you could pull the engine up onto the trailer. It hooks up on this rail. The big arms swing up overhead and lock in place, and now the engine's hanging there suspended. And you can take it all apart. And I built all the machines. I welded them on the floors that need to check, like the turbine checker, um, TIT, all this equipment that you need to um, test the parts in different sections. You got three main sections, compressor, combustion, and turbine. And then the big gearbox and the prop up front. And I had all these different devices built onto this trailer that could hold it all in place. So then I went and got personnel. When you come out of boot camp, you don't go straight into the fleet. Uh, they'll put, you'll do what is known as service week or service month until they find a place in the fleet for you. So in the meantime, your compartment cleaners, your, uh, floor moppers, buffers, uh, in, in the kitchen, you're processing garbage, you're, you uh, called a scully, nasty. But you're doing all these menial jobs until they find a job that you've been trained in the schools for. So they spend a lot, they send a lot of techs just out of school, but they run them through this compartment cleaning stuff. So I went down there to where the compartment cleaners and um, cooks help and all that. And I said, I want every ADJ, uh, a jet engine technician. I wanted them to, uh, be sent to me and I want to work with them. And so they, um, um, said, sure. What do you need them for? I said, I need them to work on a, on a, on a, on a A1A project. And they went, Oh yeah, the turbines. I said, yeah. So I taught each guy to do one job and one job only. And that would be to, um, uh, different assembly sections in these uh, uh, jet engines. But these guys would do one or two jobs and not worry about anything else and just keep doing that over and over. Well, guess what? They not only become experts at that one particular job, but they're also faster than anybody on the planet at doing it. So <clears throat> I get these guys um, lined up, and we get on a trailer, and I'm pull, that's another thing. The, what I found in the yellow gear couldn't find any tow trucks. So they gave me this. <laughs> Do you ever see the TV show Green Acres? Yep. Remember that tractor he drove, how ratty with the old metal wheels and the yep, right. steering column about nine feet long coming out to you with the steering wheel? Mm -hmm. And a little flapper valve on the exhaust pipe. <laughs> 
that's what they gave me. <laughs> that's all they had left. So I had this raggy-looking old tractor, and I hooked up to the trailer, and I said, we're going to have some fun. And I'll never forget this. It was Friday the 15th in the military. What does Friday do on the 15th and 30th? That's Paycheck. payday. Yep. Yeah. This is a Friday afternoon, and they get on the 15th, so they got their paychecks. And the hangers had pulled one of the engines out and put it on a trailer, and they all left. They're all going to do that. They don't care whether it's red alert or not. You know, just, um, so, well, they left. They pulled the engine out, and they were leaving it for me, and I'm to come over and get it. And so what... uh what we did was really, I thought it was really cool. We pulled up to it, and I got out with a piece of chalk, and I marked the trailer tires exactly where they're, they're sitting, uh, the engines on a, tra- on a trailer. Then we pulled the trailer over and lined it up with ours, and we um, started in on it. And we completely overhauled that turbine section, everything, all the other stuff, put it back together, rolled it back out into the hangar, exactly what chalk marks are. So it looks like it's never been touched. It's, it's been completely overhauled in from three weeks to four and a half hours. That's what my machine can do. We went from overhaul time of a T-56 turboprop engine big as a school bus Take us three weeks to overhaul it. We did it in four and a half hours with this machine. So I went back home and I wanted some uh, sh- shrimp uh, scampi. So I was fixing it in my kitchen and I get this pounding on the front door and it's um, all these SPs, Shore Patrol. I'm arrested. <laughs> And so they whisked me off to the uh, brig, uh, and I'm sitting there, and I told the Marines, uh, they had, uh, I was sitting back in the cell there, and they had Playboys and penthouse magazines all over the place. And I told them, I said, you guys might want to pick these up and straighten your place up a little bit. And they go, why? Because I'm, I'm telling you, in just a short time, you're going to have the largest crowd of fleet admirals you ever seen flying here. And they said, to the brig? I said, yeah. Well, who'd you kill? Uh, uh, an admiral's daughter? I said, no. <laughs> just, I just, uh, they think I ignored uh, the red A1A status of these engines. They went, my God, they kill you. That's execution stuff. I said, yes, don't worry about it. So, sure enough, I told the Marines, watch the front driveway up there, and they did. And I heard one Marine go, oh, my God, there come a black limousine with two flags, one on each fender, and it was Sinkland Flint. That's the um, main command of the Eastern Hemisphere, Western Hemisphere of the Navy. And uh, they come running up there, and it was come hell flying in there. And uh, Marines then cleaned up the place and gave me a Bible. <laughs> so that's a nice touch. And... uh they come flying in there, and there was my uh, master chief and my CDI, collateral duty inspector, and everybody, and then the admirals, and they went, why did you do this? You know, this is a court-martial. I said, 
No, not really. And they went, what do you mean? I said, they said, you didn't change that engine. It's sitting exactly where it was. I went, yeah, I know. That's the cool part. Um, it's done. <laughs> They're also just staring. And they go, what do you mean it's done? Now, we've already changed the turbine out and everything. It's completely new. And they're all puzzled because they know me, and I just wouldn't make a lie this crazy. So I told the master chief, he knew me pretty well, and he said, Dare, what are you doing? I went, grab the CDI and the QA officer and take them both down there and tell them, take a boroscope with them and tell them, stick that boroscope, you know, up the butt of that jet engine. Come closer to the microphone. And read the serial numbers off of the turbine wheels and the compressor blades, and you'll see that they're all new numbers. We, it's done. We're through. And the chief's going, <laughs> like, how the hell did you do it? Never mind. Just go do it. So they did. Well, still sitting in jail. And um, they called back, and I can hear the admirals up front going, that's impossible. What? No. What the hell? That's impossible. So um, I told them, Reigns, uh, we're going to go for a ride quickly. Sure enough, man, they threw us in the limousine. We were hauling butt to the hangar. We get to the hangar, and the QA stand there, about the pale snow. CDI looks the same way. Collateral duty inspector. And the animals get out and go, well, what did you find? He goes, they're all new numbers. It's all new. But it's done. And then going, how is this done? It takes three weeks. It's only been six hours. I said, yeah, I know. I spent the last two hours in the brig here. Um, I said, uh, have the chauffeur drive me over uh, to the seawall where the old uh, uh, yellow gear equipment is setting. And so we left. And uh, I get out, and the chauffeur sees me get on this old tractor and so I told him, Go back to the Admirals, I'll be right behind you. So he comes back by himself and the Admirals look at that and say, What did Dare do? Did he escape? Did he run? Call Shore Patrol, get him out and they said, No, he goes, uh, he's coming back with some kind of equipment. So I came around the corner of the hangar and it looked like uh Oliver Wendell Douglas driving that tractor and then that big trailer came around into view and all the special equipment I built for it. I pulled up next to him and said, see this? This is what did it. We could put everything we got so we don't have to go to anywhere to get parts. Everything's pre-ordered. They're all in the little drawer, chest of drawers I put in place. Everything you need to do, you don't move from the trailer from start to finishing. And the guys have been taught to do one job, one procedure or two, and they're speed experts. And asked the CDI and the QA, did they see any errors in the safety wire or any of the stuff that we did? And they said, no. I said, yeah, I wouldn't think so. So that's how we do it. Now I can do this with this machine. I can do this to this jet engine. And when we're through with it, and after we've retrofitted every engine in the fleet that's been sent here, these machines can be taken to aircraft carriers. So your pilots come in after combat, the engine's shot up, pilot's tired, he gets some chow, goes to bed. When he wakes up, the engine's been overhauled. He's ready to go again. Goes right back out the next day with the same aircraft 
the enemy would say, we surely damaged 10 of those aircrafts, but all 10 are right back next day. That would scare the hell out of an attacking force. Like, my God, it's just endless aircraft. They don't, they're back in fighting next day. So it would give us a real edge. And I can design it for every engine there is. F-14, J-65, J-79, you name it. I could uh, modify it for every engine there is and have them on carriers. And you would be so equipped. Well, we got all the uh, T-56 engines done, sent back out to fleet, right back up. Instead of what they think was going to be about a six-month job, was done in about... Two and a half, three weeks we were done with the entire fleet. And then I've got a letter of accommodation here, and it says, you know, we set world record turnaround times. So anyhow, I thought that was pretty cool. And I come in work one day. This is weeks after the emergency's over with. And... Some of my friends came in and said, David, hell's going on in the back back here. Your big machine, it's being cut up by the Seabees. So I come running out there, and there's about 10 welders out there just torches cutting my machine into hundreds of pieces. And they just reduced my machine down to nothing. And I asked him, you know, whose orders are this? He said, this came from Sinkland Flint. So I get in the Jeep and go flying over to their headquarters, run past Marine guards who's chasing me. I go right into the Admiral's office and ask him, what the hell is wrong with you? And he says, um, tell the guards to go back out. He said, and they talked to him. So he, the Admiral said, David, here's a problem. Um, we got contracts with the aerospace companies. They have over a hundred thousand workers on this base and their unions are striking because of your machine. <laughs> what do you mean? You went from three weeks of overtime to nothing. And the military itself overhauls the engine, doesn't even take it to them. You just pulled billions of dollars out of a hundred thousands of people's pockets from overtime working. They were looking forward to this. Oh, you I did went, what they all could have done in probably years? Yeah. And I went, to me, it was just, you know, I'm not thinking about unions and people's overtime. I'm trying to get the damn Navy on its feet as fast as humanly possible because their fleets are blinded. I mean, I'm doing what a sailor should be doing. And the Admiral went, well, you're absolutely right. But in the real world, I mean, that is the real world. Real world is we are so really uh powerful with this system set in place we could you know he goes well you're not taking account all the politics involved and the contracts and all that so anyway your machine's done away with and if the cbs are done by now and uh we will never build your machine again because uh the unions have made us agree to not bring something like that around ever again and to make sure that the person did it is sent somewhere away. I mean, so I'm being punished for building a machine that set world records for turning our jet engines around and how handy that would be in combat. Was that ever 
transferred to the general contractors for them to claim they did it? No. That was one thing the Admiral made sure didn't happen. He says, bad enough, we had to cut up your machine right in front of you and pull you out of jet engine technology and send you somewhere else. So the last thing we would let happen is let them claim your work. So it's going to just never be reported like it never happened. That was the end of my second machine. I drove back to um, AIMD Aircraft Intermediate Maintenance Department, and that's where my machine was setting, and it was just cut into a big pile of scrap and smoldering. I just sat down in the middle of it and just held my head in my hands for a while, just thinking, first pistolum and now this. And um, and there, later on, in the commercial world, the third machine I built is just as great as these first two. And um, it was buried legally. And so that was three in a row, one, two, three. And my first one was blown up, second was cut up, and third one was legally buried. And I, at that point, I was a ripe old age of 24. And I decided I am never going to build another damn thing on this planet as long as I live. Because of what happened. Well, what would you do, ma'am? Oh, I know. You know, what would anybody do? They just destroy every damn thing that you build. It's super cool. They destroy it. Don't want it. Don't even want a trace of it. And um, after the Is it because one, you're rocking the boat? Yeah, it's called addressing the problem, solving it seriously as fast as I can, and you get punished for that. So I decided I'm not going to ever work again on anything. That's why you don't find me with my published white papers and, you know, a, a wake of machines behind me. Well, you're you're basically this, the equivalent of discovering the cure for cancer. Yeah, three times over. And, um, but actually, I'm in good company. Yeah, heard a guy of Nikolai Tesla. Nikola, Nikola Tesla? Yeah. Sure. Look how we treated him. Oh, of course. Died all alone in a little hotel room. Dan Marconi stole nine of his patents to make the radio. Marconi was a liar and a fraud. He never invented the radio. What about Edison? That, yeah. In Edison, same way. He was a liar. Light bulb. Uh, and yet history tried to paint them out as perfect, little, wonderful people. They were pricks. Tesla did it all. We hardly even know about him. So. Yeah, I just always wonder that. Like, I learned about Tesla after I left high school, and I was wondering, if this man created so many great things, how come he doesn't appear in a single history book or science book? Because he wanted to give stuff away, like transferring energy through the air, power, yep. that anybody could pull in for free. J.P. Well, Morgan. Hell, they ain't going to go for that. J.P. Morgan so didn't want that. Could, could it be metered? Yeah. Exactly. So they're going to do you like the American Indian. They 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 just don't want you dead. They want you not where you never existed. In the reservations, in a rock somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's me all over. That's the answer to the critics. So what and, happens after, well, you said you had a second one. The jet engine changing machine was the second one. Okay. You can consider, consider pithylene, uh, pith, what do you call it again? Pithylum. 
Pithlam. You consider that your first one? Yeah, it was my first one. The second one is the one that they broke into. Is there another one? It's the third one. Uh, it's in the aluminum casting industry. And, man, you think uh, I wouldn't know much about aluminum casting. Well, I didn't. I got to work with a with a savant genius in that industry, a guy named um, Willard Bellamy. Just an amazing man. God. Anyhow, uh that's that's a that's a whole story book and movie by itself. Uh the way that one came to played out. But um it is the answer, the the real ultimate answer to the question, why haven't we seen uh your work all over the place? And why haven't you published papers? I did two of my first machines I did before I was nineteen. And then uh, the third one, I think I was around 24 when I did it. And after that, I just never built another device ever. And I just kind of went into teaching. I became a professional speaker. I cut a big uh, track in that. And uh, and in a way, that's like teaching. And I really like that. And I did that for the uh, really a lot of times. I've worked so many other jobs in between, fun jobs, things I picked I wanted to do. Um did several jobs in the film industry and um but I never really built any of the you know the paradigm shifting really earth shaking things I just never built another one didn't but that didn't mean I couldn't have I looked at things through life I probably would have if I hadn't stopped I could probably built about 15 20 things each of them would be as impressive as Pistolum and the and the jet engine changing machine and, and also the device in the aluminum industry. Um, God, things I could have done, but. Well, that's, as you said, that's a life of Tesla. That's a life of a lot of adventures. If it rocks the boat, if it's going to jeopardize or fracture the current revenue stream of this multi-trillion dollar industry, you are breaking their livelihood in a way. Yeah. Um, and then I'm, you know, so just kind of drifting through the years. Man, I know I'm capable of things, but then I met somebody on a romantic level, and um, that was my wife and uh, Joanna. And I absolutely won the lottery in that world. And um, I spent 17 years with her. Uh, and We worked together side by side for 24-7 for 17 years. And uh, zero arguments. Not had a single one. Not one. How many people you know can say that? What's the secret? I don't know. I wasn't looking for anybody. Uh, she just showed up one day. Uh, no, what's the secret for not having an argument ever? It's a way overused phrase that you don't even know where it came from. You know, I found my soulmate. Well... I've been, uh, my wife died seven months ago and I've just been in misery here. And, uh, um, sorry to hear that. And I'm from, uh, I'm in North Carolina and not far from Cherokee. And there's a native, um, medicine man, Cherokee medicine man. And he's known me for a long time. He's worried about me. And he came over and told me an interesting story. And, um, 
He said it was such an honor to meet me. I thought it was an honor to meet a, a real medicine man. But he said, um, he said, let me tell you about one of our legends uh, concerning the birth of the world. Uh, he said, you probably never heard of Split Apart. So I went, no. Well, he said, wait a minute. I remember a movie called Butcher's Wife. And she talked about that, but I wasn't paying attention. And he goes, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's in that movie. He said, uh, when the great spirit was making the world, God didn't have enough souls, ran short. So what are you going to do? You know, you're busy. You got other things going on. So God said, well, the great spirit said, I'll take these souls. I'll split them in half. I'll put them in equal distance across from each other on the planet and I'll populate the planet. So that's what he did. And there it was. And ever since then, people have been looking for their soulmate. And when you meet your soulmate, you're split apart, that's when you say, you complete me. That's where these phrases came from, from this Native American legend, the split aparts. So you've been using those phrases, and you don't even know where they came from. Now you do. So the medicine man told me, he said, David, you do realize you, you met your split apart, your other half. He said, that's today's population. That's almost one in eight billion chance that you did that. So he, um, he has, you really had a really charm life. Most people will never get to that point or never know what you had for 17 years. And I thought, geez, that certainly is a different way of looking at it. So anyhow, that's, um, that's how the, Native Americans look at our soulmate and you complete me. That's where it comes from. And by the way, I appreciate we haven't taken a break because I wanted, I didn't want to break the information flow, but if you need a break right now, let me know. Uh, you know, it might be a good idea. Thank you for listening to the first part of Chapter 3 of The Life and Technology of David Adair. Now, let's go to the member section where you can listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Enjoy.